I'm going to read all of 1 Samuel chapter 10. Hear now the word of the Lord, for this is indeed his holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor, and three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. <clears throat> After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines, and there, as soon as you come into the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. And the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clans of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. And Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship 
And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So ends the reading of God's word. May he indeed bless it. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word. We pray that you would fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our King and our Redeemer, our Savior. Help us to marvel at your majesty and your love for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the New Testament book of Romans, in chapter 1 of that book, the Apostle Paul explains for us the cause of our unhappy situation in life, the cause of our suffering and sadness that we experience, the futility of our work, the futility of our lives, and the fears that we experience that drive so much of what we do. And in short, he says that we have received that which we asked for, that there has been a terrible exchange that God has given us. The Apostle Paul says that the Almighty God has revealed to all mankind himself, his invisible qualities, his power, his divine nature. He's revealed these things in the things that have been made, and we are without excuse. We ought to understand who this God is and worship and adore him and give him thanks. It's like we sang, with all my heart, my thanks I bring. And yet, the Apostle Paul says that we have denied that which is right before our eyes. That we have rejected God. And Paul says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to iniquity because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Beloved, our God, the God, has created us for himself. He's created us to live in fellowship with him and to receive the infinite blessing of being in communion and fellowship with him, to rejoice and to rest in his goodness and his grace and his power and his protection and his provision and his love and his adoration. And he is ever faithful perfectly faithful, and yet that isn't good enough for us. It's never been good enough for us. And so the Apostle Paul says that God has given us up to those things that we asked for, given us up. We, God extends to us his truth, true truth. We prefer the lie. He offers himself And we prefer the things that he's made. He gives us true wisdom, and yet we become fools. He offers us infinite blessing and joy and peace 
and grace, but we prefer a path that results in suffering and condemnation and death. Beloved, those words, God gave them up. Can you fathom a more unhappy phrase in all of Scripture? God gave them up. We were created for him. We live in him. We have our being in him. We are blessed in him. We need him. And yet he gave us up in his anger. Give us exactly what we want. But I can assert to you, brothers and sisters, that even though this was in an act of anger, it was also an act of supreme love. Our God's anger is loving. A loving father hates when his children follow a path that will lead to suffering or condemnation or death. And sometimes a loving father will permit his children to suffer in their foolishness so that they will gain a heart of wisdom. Sometimes a loving father will permit a child to reap the fruit of their lies that they might yearn for wisdom. Sometimes our heavenly father will allow us to starve in the mud with the pigs so that we would long to be rescued, to be able to return to our God, to be restored to him, to his loving arms. And beloved, this, this folly of our hearts to always be pursuing anything other than the perfection of our God has been ours from the beginning. It's part of our sin nature, and it's part of the struggle that you and I face over and over again in our everyday lives. And it was, it's visible here in the story of Israel in 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10. God had been their king. God had provided for them. He had protected them. He had delivered them from all their enemies. And he had always been faithful. And yet that wasn't good enough. And they rejected him as king, and they said, give us a, a king to rule over us, just like all the other nations. And God said, okay. And he gave them up to their desires. He gave them Saul as an act of judgment, an act of anger. And God was doing this as a means to restore him, restore his people to himself. And what we, should, what we have to see in this passage is even from the very beginning of when we see Saul, we see this comparison between the faithfulness of our God and the unfaithfulness, the futility, the foolishness of their decision. And that's what God puts before us this morning, even as we see the life of Saul. Now, what I want to do is I want to begin by examining our, our story in the middle, in at verse 17. Now, Saul, Samuel had assembled all the people. The people had asked for a king. God had selected this king, Saul, and now it was time to present the king to the people. And so he assembled all the people at Mizpah. Well, what we need to see is that this is not a mere coronation ceremony. This is a moment where God is declaring his judgment 
his anger towards his people because they have chosen unwisely. They have chosen foolishly, and they are about to suffer for it. And speaking on behalf of the Lord, once the people are assembled here in verse 17, it says, Now Samuel called the people together, and he said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now listen to what he says. He focuses on what God has done. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. I have been faithful. I was your king. You've not lacked no good thing. I was with you. Remember my love, my power, my care for you. But, verse 19, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. I was faithful, but that wasn't good enough. You have rejected me. You've asked for a king. Here is your king. And he says, now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. My beloved, if you know your biblical history, you know that there was one other incident in the Old Testament before this event where the Lord called his people together and he had this selection by lot. It was in the book of Joshua. And it too was an act of God's judgment. People of Israel had come into the promised land. They had conquered Jericho. And they were told to, to devote everything to destruction. But there was a man, Achan, who coveted some of the devoted things. He took things that were supposed to be destroyed. He took a cloak. He took silver. He took gold. And he brought them into his tent. And the Lord's anger burned against Israel. They were defeated at Ai. And they call out to the Lord, what, 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 what's happened, Lord? And he said, assemble the people. There's sin in the camp. And by the same similar selection that we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 10, they narrowed it down to the man, Achan, who had stolen these things. And he said, I have sinned. And he was judged on behalf of the people. And the people were restored well, here too, beloved, we see yet another selection ceremony. In one, one, in one sense, the Lord is narrowing down and he's making abundantly clear, pointing the finger at Saul to say, this is the man that I've selected. But there is an air of judgment to say, you have rejected me. This is the judgment. Here is the one, the name to the pain that you will experience, this man, Saul. And throughout the whole narrative, the Lord has been presenting to us this comparison of his faithfulness compared to the foolishness of this man, Saul. And what we see is we see three key failings of this man, how this Saul will be an insufficient king compared to the faithfulness of our God. Samuel shows us that Saul failed to deliver his people. He showed that he failed to speak the truth and that he failed to exhibit true courage to appear before his people and lead them. We can see all these in, in, through this lens of this, this narrative that the Lord's saying here in verse 17. He, God says, I was the one who delivered you. I saved you. I brought you out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the enemies of all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But Saul didn't. So, 
going back to the beginning of this chapter, Samuel anoints Saul. Saul is anointed and set apart as the king. And Samuel gives to Saul these three signs, these prophetic signs, to validate and to authenticate the fact that God indeed has set Saul apart as king. He says, uh, three things are going to happen, so you know. The first thing is, uh, when you come down by Rachel's tomb in the land of Benjamin, you're going to meet these men, and they're going to tell you exactly what you were concerned about. You might remember that he was worried that his father would be concerned about him when they were looking for the donkeys so long. He said, these men are going to say, the donkeys have been found, your father's worried about you, he's wondering what to do. That's sign number one. Sign number two, you're going to go on from there, you're going to come to the Oak of Tabor, or Tabor, and there's going to be some men, and they're going to have three goats, three loaves of bread, and a skin of wine. And because you have been anointed king, they're going to give you bread, two, pieces, two loaves of bread. And you're going to go on from there. You're going to come to your hometown, where it's either called Gibeath Elohim, which means hill of God, or Gibeah. And when you come there, there's going to be this group of prophets coming down from the high place, and they're going to have instruments. They're going to be singing harps, lyres, tambourines, flutes. And when you see them, when they come, the Spirit of God is going to rush upon you, and you're going to be changed. You're going to have the power of God to be able to prophesy. You're going to be like a new man. But notice what he says. He says, when these things happen, he says there is a, there is a, a Philistine garrison there. Now, if you remember in chapter 9, when Saul was approaching the place where Samuel was, the Lord had told Samuel, this is the man that you're going to anoint. He is going to deliver my people from the Philistines. And, he, and the Lord said, the cry of my people has come up to me, and I've heard them, and they're going to be delivered, but they're going to be delivered by this king. It's a, an echo of the Exodus, which is what the Lord was talking about here in verse 18. In, in Egypt, God's people cried out to the Lord. The Lord heard. The Lord always hears. And he delivered them. He came and he rescued them out of Egypt. Well, now, decades later, generations later, they're crying out because of the Philistines. But remember, the people of God had asked for another king. So the Lord said, well, let this king deliver them. I will anoint Saul to be the one who delivers them. And that's what, and here, at the beginning of chapter 10, when, when Samuel's talking to Saul, he says, there is a Philistine garrison there. He says, when all these signs come upon you, he says, says verse 6, or you'll, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you. Verse 7, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for the Lord is with you. Now, that's not just language of, well, now you've got the freedom to act. That is military language, beloved, that we see in the book of Judges. What he's saying is that you've been anointed by God's power. You've been set apart from him by him to deliver his people. So when you see these three signs come true, you know God is with you. He is empowering you to do what he's called you to do. So act. Deliver your people. Deliver my people. And the text says that as soon as he turned his back on Samuel to go, he was a changed man, and all these signs came to pass. The, the men talked to him about 
the donkeys. Uh, the other two men gave him the loaves of bread. And when he came to his hometown of Gibeah, the, Phil, uh, the prophets came down and the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he began to prophesy. So much so that the people around him who knew him said, what's gone on? What's going on? What, what happened to Saul, son of Kish? Why is he prophesying? Who is he? What, who is he to do this? It's at that point where these signs point to do what your hand finds to do. Deliver your people. And there is silence. There's no delivery. There's no deliverance. The Lord delivered on his promise, but Saul did not. There's a second silence, and that is with Saul failing to speak the truth. He's failing to be forthright. For some reason, Saul goes up to the high place rather than delivering the people from the Philistines. And Saul's uncle is there. And Saul's uncle says, well, where have you been? He says, well, I was looking for the donkeys. Couldn't find the donkeys, so we went to see Samuel. You can envision Saul's uncle's eyes seem to widen a bit, and he perks up. He seems to know who Samuel is, Samuel, this man of God. And you get the sense that his uncle knew something was up. Perhaps he knew that Saul had been prophesying, surprisingly. Perhaps he smelled the anointing oil still on Saul's head, and he says, Samuel, what, what did Samuel tell you? Please tell me everything that he said. And Saul says, oh, Samuel? Well, you know, he told me, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. Silence about the kingdom. Why didn't he say it? We don't know. He was silent. It wasn't a lie, but it wasn't the truth. He held back. He didn't go forward in truth. And then third, there's this lack of courage, this cowardice, this inability to appear. The Lord had always been faithful. Whenever his people repented and turned to him and called out, he rushed to their aid and he presented himself before his people. He was with them, the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. He was always there, and yet Saul was not. We come to the selection service, and Samuel says, okay, we're going to cast lots to see this king that you have asked for. So they cast the lots, and he calls out, the tribe of Benjamin has been chosen. And then the tribe of Benjamin comes clan, or tribe by, or clan by clan. He says, the, the Matrite clan has been chosen. Okay, so then they go down to the Matrite clan, and all of a sudden they start going family by family. He says, Saul, son of Kish, has been chosen. And there's silence. No one shows up. Perhaps the second call, Saul, son of Kish. And everyone kind of scratches their head and says, huh? Is, is there somebody that we're supposed to be expecting here? He fails to appear. And once again, it is God who must reveal even where Saul is hiding. So they inquire of the Lord. He's hidden himself in the baggage. Now you would think that at this point, people of God might have second, might second guess their, their decision. You know, they want their man. They run over there, it says. And you can envision them tossing baggage left and right. And they find Saul huddled in the back. And they lift him up, and he's tall. And they bring him to Samuel. And the text says, and Samuel says, Do you see him 
whom the Lord has chosen. There is none like him among all the people. But I think you can, in light of what's going on there, in light of the Lord's anger at what's going on, I think you can trace a bit of sarcasm in what Samuel is saying, as if to say, do you see the one the Lord's chosen? This one who would not deliver, one who can't speak the truth, the one who can't even show up and present himself when his name is called. This is the one that the Lord has chosen for you. This is your choice. At least he's handsome. At least he's handsome. And yet the people were undeterred. There was a blindness of their hearts. And what do they do? They cried out, long live the king. Long live the king. But even still, beloved, this, this king, anointed, presented before the people, he doesn't have full power. He's still under the authority of God himself. Notice what happens. Then Samuel tells the people the rights and duties of the kingship. This is how the king, this is what the king must do. This is what his, his rights are. He's under the authority of God's word. This is probably reading from Deuteronomy chapter 17 where Moses had given laws about the king that would come. And then, even though there's a king that's been presented, the people have submitted themselves to the king. It's not the king who disperses the assembly. It's Samuel who sends all the people away, each to his own home, even Saul. There's a weakness in this man, a failure to lead. And yet... Beloved, there's a theme throughout Scripture which one of the prophets says, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. We cannot, even in the most offensive actions that we take against our God, our God is love. He is kindness. And we can see that kindness even in our God right here. So Saul went away to his home, and with him were men of valor whose hearts God had touched. God is even caring for Saul, touching the hearts of these men of valor as he goes off to begin his reign. But at the same time, our decisions to turn away from the Lord result in suffering, and we begin to see a foreshadowing of this very same thing, a foreshadowing of conflict and a division within God's people. There were some worthless fellows who said, how can this man save us? And they despised him. But again, Saul was silent. Beloved, such is, such is the case. Such is a picture of what happens when we turn from our God. We and we seek something other than what he has offered to, himself, to us in himself. And what you and I have to ask ourselves is how have we rejected the perfection of our God? How have we sought deliverance or truth or courage or presence from something other than God himself? Where, is it, where are we suffering as a result of the decisions that God has handed us over? Where are we failing in it? Because what, what human institution, 
brothers and sisters, has ever delivered. Has, has ever delivered you from the things that you need to be delivered from. I mean, we're at the very beginning stages of yet another political election cycle. And as you look at those candidates, those potential candidates, which of them do you think will really, truly deliver on the promises that they make, let alone the, the things that we need? To truly deliver us from our true enemy and, and give us the peace and the rest and the satisfaction that we are made for, the joy that is ours. What, what political leader ever in your lifetime has ever amounted to even a fraction of what God is and what God promises in himself? Why are we always yearning and longing for such thing? Or when it comes to truth, what human institution truly offers truth. Science proclaims they have truth, but science is just examining evidence and often through the folly of darkness. That's why science changes its opinions from one day to the next, one year to the next. The advice always changes. Or the education industry, if you will. What is, what is the, the truth that higher education wants to profess. Is there any stable, grounded truth that doesn't change from, at most, one generation to the next? Well, talking heads on TV or the, the psych, psychiatric industry who wants to tell us this is what we need in order to live fulfilling lives, happy lives, joyous lives, comfortable lives. Yet we go to these sources of truth, as though they will give us something substantive, substantial, that we can, we can rest upon. But beloved, we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Those are shifting sands. The, the psalmist says, I've said in my despair, all men are liars. Do you know that to be the case? Do you know that every human institution is fundamentally a lie that we have, we have grabbed hold of, if it, especially and exactly when it is counter to what the Word of God is. This is where we have received truth, beloved. Or true courage? Is there anything we find that is true courage? Or is our culture, is every one of us in some ways driven by fear? Every authoritative, supposedly authoritative in, uh, entity in our existence, driven by fear. Politicians, afraid of the polls. Parents, afraid of their kids. Employers, afraid to lose their employees or afraid to not get their bonuses every quarter. Where is true courage to stand firm on what is right and to lead? Yeah, beloved, this is the lie that we pursue. This is what the Lord has handed us over to, to suffer. But when has God ever disappointed? When has God ever not delivered on one of his promises? When, when, has, he never when has he ever failed to deliver you from one of your fears or one of your enemies? Yes, you and I might suffer, but the suffering that we endure is redemptive. It is purposeful. It is, it is a loving father to train his children. He's never let you truly fail. He's never let you truly fall. 
He's never let you been consumed, I know, because you're here this morning. But what about truth? Has, have you ever read one thing, one syllable in God's word that has failed to be true? Is this not the truth that makes our hearts burn, that expands our hearts and our minds to understand things that were hidden before, but now are right before our eyes and so clear and stirs up such holy affections that motivates our hearts and our lives to, to serve with gladness, to give of ourselves, to deny ourselves. Encourage, beloved, our God is the perfect love who drives out fear. He is the only source of true power and might, and perfection, and faithfulness on which all courage is truly based. And yet, beloved, just like those Israelites, it's sometimes right before our eyes, the folly of what we choose, and yet we're blind to it, and we cry out to the world, and we say, long live the king. Beloved, where are you saying, long live the king to this world? Where have you been looking for satisfaction and fulfillment and protection and truth? And it's just shifting sands. Who is the true ruler of your life? And are you willing to even look? Are you settling for what is weak and foolish when you can have what is grand and glorious? And beloved, know this. Our God has an opinion about this. Our God has an opinion about where your heart is. He knows where your heart is, and he cares. And if your heart is not towards him, it angers him. But it is an anger of love because he wants your heart. He wants to lavish upon you grace upon grace, infinite blessing. He wants to give you himself. He wants you to know true truth, to stop living in a lie. And beloved, that same, same request, in wrath, Remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Know this, beloved. That is our God. In wrath, he remembers mercy. That is why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, beloved. That is why he came he, as the perfect king, the perfect one to, to rescue us, to, to seek and to save us and to draw us back into the, the blessing of the Father. And he is the anti-Saul. He is the, the success story where Saul was a failure. He came and he was anointed just like Saul was, but not in private by Samuel, but in public. In his baptism and the Holy Spirit came upon him, not just a small measure to be able to prophesy, but without measure. And he did all that his hand came to do. He immediately went into the wilderness. Why? To wage war. To wage war against sin and death and the one who has power over death. Even the devil. He went to be tempted, to be tested, to be tried, to go into the strong man's house and to bind and to rescue those who have been held captive. And he came to declare truth. He said, Father, your word is truth. And he came to do everything that the Father called him to do. He came to proclaim the gospel in himself. And he came and he exhibited true courage. He was faithful unto death. He did not shrink to do one thing that the Lord called him to do. He set his face like flint 
to Jerusalem knowing what he would endure. He went and he was arrested and beaten and he was clothed with a purple robe and a mocking crown of thorns. And it wasn't Samuel who took him and placed him before the people, but it was Pontius Pilate who brought him before the people, bloodied, bruised, scorned. And Pilate said, behold the man. What should I do with your king? And the people didn't say, long live the king. They said, crucify him. And he said, you want me to crucify your king? That we have no king but Caesar. Beloved, is that your heart? When you see the Lord Jesus Christ set before you, you say, that is my king. That is my savior. That is the one who came to deliver me. And he came and he willingly, boldly, courageously was, gave himself up to be hung on the cross so that publicly we might say, do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There is none like him. And this king, beloved, this king came not to, sh- to shrink from his duties, but to bear the weight of the wrath of God. The lot of God's wrath fell upon him, and he bore in his body our sins, our rejection, our hardness of heart. It was all publicly displayed in his body. This king, beloved, is so powerful, so glorious, so pure, that death could not hold him. He really, truly delivered us, beloved. This is the king that you and I must serve. This is the king that we must submit ourselves to. Beloved, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him. There is none like him among all the people. He is the most excellent of men, the glorious and beautiful king of kings and lord of lords, the one who is bruised and battered for you, who gave up his life for you, who was raised from the dead to set you free. Trust him. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. And he will most certainly deliver you. Beloved, our hearts must shout out with joy. Long live the king forever and ever. May he live and reign forever and ever and receive our worship and adoration for all eternity. For he is worth it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have loved us enough to rescue us, even in the midst of our foolishness and our folly, our blindness, our sin, our rebellion, all those things, Lord. Even when you are angry, you are merciful. Your cross was a picture of your love mingled with wrath for our salvation. Oh, Lord, redeem us and fill us with joy. Help us to live in a way that's pleasing to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.